What is up guys? This is All The Smoke on Strength and Physique with your hosts, Adam and Chris, where we provide you with evidence-based information, community support, and recognition to all who are betting themselves with fitness. Welcome back to All The Smoke on Strength and Physique. We got another hella special guest, Dr. Teddy Wilsey. My man is a doctor of physical therapy. He's been a former strength coach. He's worked specifically with all types of athletes in the prehab rehab setting. Um, and again, he's got a different, I would say, mindset and philosophy when it comes to getting individuals back ready for their particular sport or whatever they're kind of getting involved in. Um, his him himself, he's got a, a history of powerlifting. Um, and if I'm not mistaken, his specific clinic is cash based, correct? Correct. So, yeah, we can kind of maybe even get into that. But uh, for all those DPTs or student DPTs listening out there, um, definitely give this a listen or make sure you give him a follow because um, he's been through the trenches and he's got his uh, whole business and even got an on online business kind of going right there. So he's definitely dibble dabbling all sorts of uh, avenues. So, Teddy, for those individuals who have no idea who you are, could you go ahead and introduce yourself, sir? Absolutely. First, I uh, appreciate you guys having me on. Uh, looking forward to diving into it. Um, so I think I think Adam did a pretty good job of introducing myself, but I'm a sports based physical therapist and I really kind of cut my teeth in the strength and conditioning world. And that was my first love in this field, I would say. And so uh, my my SNC background and, and working with athletes really kind of influences everything I do as a physical therapist. And uh, as I got into the physical therapy world, I, I was fortunate enough to have some really good professors and influences early in my PT career that really showed me kind of the evidence-based side of things. And it exposed me to what like science and the scientific process and, and all of that really is and what it means. And so I guess where I am now, I'm a, a kind of an evidence-informed, uh, science-driven sports physical therapist. And, um, you know, I've, I've found that the side of physical therapy that's very evidence-based really matches up with a lot of the higher level strength and conditioning knowledge and research and the physiology behind strength training. And so I uh, really, I really take pride in combining those disciplines and um, yeah, I've been fortunate to be able to grow the brick and mortar practice and have some other uh, really awesome PTs working with me and then uh, kind of reach more people on a, on a global scale through, through my online platform as well. So DPT is great. Like Adam said, before we hopped on the podcast, it's something that both of us had considered. I, he went to DPT school and decided against it because it's just not what he was thinking it was going to be. I have still tossed up an idea of doing some type of uh, doctoral program. I don't know what, uh, and I am waiting for something jump up at me. Why, why not strength and conditioning? So like, you could have been successful without a DPT title, but you decided to go into that route. Why DPT instead of pursuing a strength and conditioning route or, or what, yeah. what, what do you think sets you apart in DPT versus others? You know, it's funny. Um, truthfully, I actually applied for a sport management master's at VCU. And I had some friends there at the time in the strength department, and I was planning on doing a GA there potentially and getting my master's and totally going down the strength and conditioning route. And I, I got to an interview and the interviewer, when I got denied from the program or didn't get accepted, they basically said, uh, we didn't really think that this was what you wanted to do. <laughs> and so um, you know, I, 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 I toyed back and forth with it. Like you are Chris for a, a number of years trying to, I didn't end up in PT school until four years after my, I finished my undergrad and I toyed around with it back and forth between performance PT. But, you know, I, um, some people that have followed me on Instagram more closely might have, might see that I've rehabbed my shoulder a couple of times, had a couple of shoulder surgeries. And the first time I dislocated my shoulder, I was 14 years old. And uh, ever since then, that was kind of like an over overbearing thing for my own physical development. And so I had this exposure to PT early on, had a slap tear repair in high school. And that just kind of, that was, you know, I, I lied when I said my first love was strength and conditioning because I first got exposed to the field through physical therapy. But then once I was there and I did my SNC internships in college, I started to really gravitate towards, towards strength and conditioning. But truthfully, I think if I had had to take like a year or two of prerequisites before going to PT school, I might not have gone, but I was all ready to go when I finished my undergrad. 
and strength and conditioning ended up being this kind of like uh, slight, slight uh, detour for my career growth. Uh, but, you know, I think that what separates me kind of the latter part of your question is, is that I, I went through PT school with this framework or this foundational knowledge of strength and conditioning. And so I was able to take some of those concepts and instead of accept them at face value, like this exercise is always going to work or this, this person always presents this way, or it's always patellar tendonitis if it's this, or you always have to rest for whatever with low back pain, or you always, you know, instead of it, I was able to kind of pull read between the lines and pull things from the textbook that maybe weren't there from my already kind of my pre-existing appreciation of the complexity of working with humans. And so I think that that was really kind of what um, set the foundation for me to think outside the box and what has separated uh, me in terms of kind of content creation and uh, practicing that as a clinician as well. Yeah. And I think that's something important that you said too, is it was sort of like a detour. And I think that's where a lot of DPTs might miss out on some knowledge is because they don't get mm -hmm. taken on that detour and it's really needed because, I mean, I'm sure you've seen tons of DPTs that just follow it as in like, okay, you have low back pain, then this is what you have to do. You have, uh, tendonitis, this is what you have to do, where they don't take it as an individual as a whole that might be impacting something else, or they don't realize that they're actually an athlete. All they care about is getting back and playing their sport in the same condition as they were before. So with that being said, with DPT, uh, taking an evidence-based approach, what does, what does that mean now that you have that strength and conditioning background? Well, I think that evidence-based is, um, it's kind of gone through an evolution in how we define it. Uh, at one point in time, we looked at it really through kind of like three prongs or three different, uh, three different legs on a stool. You know, we have the evidence, we have our experience, and then we have what the patient wants slash what is actually logistically feasible. You know, sometimes we just can't get things done based on our environment, how often we can work with people, all those things that we don't have control over. But now instead of looking at evidence as kind of a, a equal chart of those three, I look at it more as kind of this funnel. And I start off with, okay, what is, what is the literature say? What is, what informs my decision-making from a, from a big picture standpoint, where, what are the averages? Then we have to look at more specifically what's going on with this person. How can I pull from my own experience there? And then finally that kind of the bottom of the funnel, what can I actually do? What can we get done? How many days per week? Can I see this person? When do they have to get back out on the field? And so when you're evidence-based, you cannot be robotic. You cannot just say, well, the textbook says this, go that way. So you have to be really open to pivot To you have to be nimble. And I think that, um, you know, all of those qualities are really important in an evidence-based practitioner so that you're not kind of stuck in the rut of doing the same thing with everybody. And then on top of that, kind of the obvious, you got to know the, you got to know the evidence, you know, you got to stay up to date. You got to know what's going on. And quite frankly, you need a lot of experience too. Like you just need, like, sometimes people say like experience, you know, deep, narrow experience isn't as effective as like wide kind of variety, varied experience. And I would agree with that, but either way, like you need, you need to have seen things before sometimes to recognize patterns. So I think that all of those things together kind of work, work to create this funneled evidence-based approach. Now, I guess, you know, to kind of get a little bit more specific, right, you had that detour for, I think you said about four years. Mm -hmm. Now, what lessons and things maybe possibly not to do did you learn through that experience? And now are you implementing in your practice physically right now? <laughs> it's a great question. You know, I think that we all see things that are helpful and things that aren't as helpful. Uh, so like Adam, speaking to your experience of uh, deciding that you didn't want to be a physical therapist. I actually, the reason that the reason that I detoured to SNC was that I had an experience uh, shadowing or, or kind of interning in a clinic one summer. And I was like, man, I don't want to do this, you know? And so I saw a lot of things along the way that I didn't want to do. And that was part of what motivated me to start my own practice and to try to create, you know, car carve out my own path and carve out my own model of treatment. But, you know, I think that um, the things that I've seen that I don't agree with and the stuff out there that I don't agree with and the other clinicians that I've had the privilege of, of being able to like speak to and get to know through online platforms, um, tell me these stories, you know, I, 
it keeps me motivated because there's so many people out there that are giving people that are giving their patients bad advice. They're kind of creating like fear and like maladaptive psychological like approaches that, that are not, not helpful or necessary. They are discouraging people from things. And then in like an athletic performance realm, a lot of them just aren't pushing athletes enough in appropriate ways. They're not, you know, sports specificity can be really popular in PT, but like really what we need is just sport demand specificity. You know, we're not going to actually have them start to play their sport. We just need to, and we just need to kind of meet their demands. And that's more of a strength and conditioning side kind of thought process that PTs aren't really taught. So, uh, you know, I, I guess that the different things I've seen that I would disagree with are, are part of what have motivated me to try to do a little bit better. So the thing that, you know, my girlfriend, she's in DPT school. And obviously I have, a, I think I have a lot of friends that are actual practicing physical therapists, but their mindset is different. But currently right now with a lot of the, the students that I speak to, man, I'm still hearing it's all fashion. It's all this nonsense. And I try to get it to understand like, yo, you can't, you can't move fashion, right? It takes tons and tons of, you know, pounds to even get like a, a little bit of movement. So again, how, I guess that, that fear tactic. And I remember this one specific video, she exaggerated hell. She's like, I'm going to pull him here. And now look at the way he stands. And that's because he's got this, you know, uneven imbalanced fascia. Now, how are, I guess, are you trying to put your own spin of, Hey, it's not this, it's actually this, or what is your perspective on that specific topic? So sometimes when I'm trying to talk to somebody about a specific thing that they've heard, and I'm trying to help them kind of come towards where I am, uh, the first thing I'm doing is I'm asking questions. I want to understand where, what they, how they're understanding this idea through. And then you got to kind of, and then I try to fast forward to the end result. Like, okay, so your example, Adam, like we're working now and we're looking at a hip imbalance. How might I help this person to understand that what they're feeling is normal and hip imbalances do exist? but then help them to kind of understand. So I'm validating what they're feeling. I'm validating their approach. Just like when we, you know, uh, like raise kids, we want to like validate their ideas and their emotions or like or mentoring people and, you know, validate their. So, so that's the first step to get them on board with me. Cause we're not, if we're not on the same team where I tell them they're sitting, you know, new patients sitting across me, I'm like, no, you're wrong. Like I'll, I'll lose them right then, you know? And so I validate their ideas. And, and then from there, I'm kind of trying to work backwards too. How else might uh, I explain to them that, you know, there are a lot of people that have asymmetries in their hips or slight shifts in their squat that aren't really having issues. And so while you are having an issue or pain right now, there might be a lot of different ways that we can get you out of pain and get you feeling better that you may not see a complete fix in that asymmetry or that issue that you have, you know? So I think part of it is kind of helping people to learn to live within their bodies and accept some things and work around. And, and, you know, typically if people are, if you bring down that, like that catastrophization feeling that they have, and you kind of remove some of the unknown and help to help to provide or illuminate this path forward for them, they can start to feel better. And so uh, I think so much of pain and, and discomfort comes from this feeling of unknown of like, well, what if I feel this every day for the rest of my life? Or what if I can never squat, you know, 400 pounds again, or, you know, something like that. And so um, if you can show them that pathway, you got to take just like with setting goals or making changes for yourself, you, you have to take it step by step. So I'm not trying to get them to completely buy into me on day one. I just need to get them a little bit further along. So I get the opportunity to work with them again on day two. And you're the, the concepts you're sort of speaking on, I feel like is not something that is taught. I guess maybe you could, uh, uh, say against that. Cause I've never gone through DPT, but I know from a master's of exercise science approach and even an undergrad approach, the psychology or the, uh, the relationships that you have to build in order to even be a coach. That's not something that I feel like they really will teach. And could, could you, is that something they'll teach in DPT school? No, not nearly as much as they should. You yes. know, I mean, our treatments are only, and it's the same for strength coaches. And this is where, you know, Brett Bartholomew has been able to carve a, carve out a good niche in terms of his messaging and the art of coaching. But I think that there's not enough focus on the, the fact that, it, you know, we're dealing with humans and our treatments only as good. Our coaching is only as good as, um, as our relationship with that person many times. Uh, so, you know, there's, 
there's a lot of focus on this psychology idea. And if we want to dive into like pain science, I don't think that's kind of a direction for the talk for our talk today, but there's a lot of focus. I'm sure you guys are familiar with that from a kind of a global sense. There's a lot of focus on this right now in the DPT world of like how important our words are, how important the narrative is, how we can help people. And, and you know, this stuff doesn't just apply to like adults with low back pain either. Like I work with like athletes who are coming off ACLs that have like really high levels of anxiety and really struggling with like what their self image is and, and who they are now after, you know, they've only been on this earth for 17 years and then they lost a year of sports due to their knee. It's like, they don't know who they are. They don't know what their new, you know? So I think that um, the psychology side of things is just so important and, and it would be great to see it a little bit more focused in, in the DPT curriculum. And when you and said ex-phys and, and sorry to interrupt you, Chris, but in, in that, you know, the whole strength and conditioning side of things too, and, and ex-phys, I mean, it's, I think it's all, it's all encompassing in any sort of profession where you're a practitioner working with people. Yeah. And even though it is not something we we're going to talk about, I think it's going to be something we talk about now. The, the, you mentioned something about the power of words, or I guess the power of thought and how that can impact pain. Could you dive a little bit further into that and what you meant? Yeah. So, I mean, when, when people are experiencing pain, they kind of learn how to ex learn how to look for it and expect to experience it later. And so they have to redevelop confidence in, uh, in their, their joint, their muscle, the activity that they're doing and in themselves. Um, a perfect example is like a hamstring strain. And then athletes start to feel uncomfortable opening up and they'll say to you, like, I just don't feel comfortable doing it. The only time, the only way that they will feel comfortable doing it is once they jump over that hurdle of that, that last time that they didn't feel comfortable, but they still did it, you know, like they're never going to feel like they can do it prior to. And so, and, and everybody's different. Some people are like bulls and they'll just push themselves through other athletes might be a little bit more tentative, you know, that's just kind of individual. We go back to psychology, but, um, I think that you know, we have to constantly as, as practitioners show people what they're capable of. And then, you know, if we're using data, if we're using objective measures and criterion-based references, and we know that they're strong enough and we feel confident making the best decision that we can with the information that we have at the time, then we can really push to give them that confidence and help them to push themselves. And you mentioned something like getting over that barrier. And it's something that me, Adam, and I have both talked with, with other DPTs or individuals who really focus on ACL injuries or something like that. What are some ways or examples that you'll, you'll help get athletes over that barrier, whether it's a, a tentative athlete or an athlete that just wants to run through it? What approaches are you taking to them to get back to, oh, I can do this without being uncomfortable? Yeah. So I, I think that the idea of ending, this is really simple, but like ending sessions on a positive note and ending sets and reps on a positive note and not pushing them into exercises that they're not prepared for and not having to like backtrack is really important. You know, you don't want to be setting something up for somebody. They do one rep with like that barbell single leg deadlift and it's feeling a little tight and you're like, oh, never mind. We're just going to go back to the 16 kilo kettlebell. You know, like you don't want to be in that position. You want to keep moving forward. So I think that using, I mentioned, uh, you know, criterion criteria and kind of objective numbers and, and data and knowing that they're getting stronger over time and then also testing and, and just showing them, letting them know what the, what the process is, showing them that they're getting stronger. You know, we do, we do a lot of, um, we have force plates, we have inline dynamometer, handheld dynamometer. We do a lot of like high level testing in order to make sure that um, we're making the best decisions that we can and to inform our decisions. And so I think all of that, and then just, you know, the little things too, like listening to them, kind of dialing into how they're doing, making sure, you know, how's your day going, just getting to know them, creating a dialogue where they're comfortable with you asking them questions and, and they will actually answer, you know, cause sometimes we're dealing with like people age like 16 to 22, maybe not the best communicators. So um, I think all of those things combined can really help to facilitate an environment where people have the best shot to feel confident and return safely. And I think, you know, from watching you a little bit, you know, on Instagram for quite some time, and I always say, and I told Chris, I was like, Teddy and Jake, Jacob, honestly, when I met Jacob, I didn't even know he was a fucking DPT or uh, a Cairo. I thought he was a DPT. And I walked down, I see uh, DC. I was like, 
hold up, what? Like he's not the typical Cairo that just pops you and says, I'll see you uh, next week and stuff like that. Um, and again, you have a, a specialization where, hey, we're going to try to make it as specific as possible to the sport or your demands of your sport. Um, and we're going to work within the constraints that we can have. So I know you kind of talked about how you setting you up for long-term success in, a, in a, almost like a linear fashion, but talk about maybe some of the bumps in the road, right? Because we know pain and any type of injury, you're going to have some setbacks. How are you explaining that to uh, like someone that, again, is already pretty upset from, hey, I'm already going to miss X amount of month or a year from my particular sport. And now I'm feeling like I'm having a setback and maybe that time's going to be longer. How are you communicating, I guess, just that process to that individual? It's like, that's like the hardest thing. <laughs> it, it really is. You know, I'll tell you a story. I'm, I'm not perfect. I don't have a hundred batting average here, but a um, uh, thousand batting average, but you know, I, I had an athlete just recently speaking of baseball who tweaked his hamstring on the woodway and we were like really close to clearing him and he hit 17.8 miles per hour uh the highest he had hit probably faster i'm guessing than he would have if he had come in before he tore his hamstring but he tore his hamstring he had two rounds of prp he was out for eight to ten weeks and uh you know he retweaks his hamstring right when he thinks he's ready and he was already kind of struggling with some confidence issues anyways just kind of He's coming into his freshman year at a D1 program. He like wanted to show up healthy, ready to go. He missed the end of his senior season because of it. And uh, yeah, trying to trying to frame that for him and like explain to him, like, look, man, like you tweaked your hamstring, but like you're gonna be all right, you know, and and trying to remind him like before we did that, we did testing and we were able to see that he was uh basically equal strength. Whereas when he came to me at the beginning of rehab, he had about 60% strength on that hamstring. So like we've done testing, we've done this stuff. I was like, look, like we did that testing. We know you're there. Honestly, I think we just peaked too hard. I think it was my own fault. I think that he wasn't quite ready for that level of peaking. And he just pushed his body a little bit more than, than he should have, which is again, completely my fault. But, you know, I tried to take the blame. I tried to explain to him like, look, man, like this is like a 10 day setback, uh, you know? And so it's, 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 that's the hardest part, honestly, the ups and downs. And you get that with like ACLs too, where they'll have like, especially like the patellar tendon autographed anterior knee pain type of thing that you see quite a bit. You know, once they start really loading that tendon around the 10 to 12 week mark, they're usually experiencing anterior knee pain for the next three to four months. So like for that example, I'm telling them at the beginning of rehab and preparing them for it. I'm like, look, we need to load the tendon this hard for this long, like total time period in order to see collagen turnover, in order to see that tendon really get stronger. It's not going to be comfortable during that time period. You will have ups and downs. You will have mornings after you train here or rehab here that your knee might be a little sore walking down the stairs, but that's okay. That's part of the process. And so if I can prepare them, and we know that from like Peter Maliaris's research and Jill Cook's research and all the good tendon and, and knee research. And so if I can explain these things to them, Again, using that evidence-based funnel, using my experience, I think that it can create a better mindset for them to be more resilient and deal with those bumps in the road too. You know, I think, again, that's a missing piece with a lot of people. You're like, you have to be upfront. And the more you know, they know, the more educated they are, again, that adherence and then that understanding of what is coming or what is happening right now as you said is it, this is part of it i can get through it and i got teddy right here on my side that is going to make sure that we're pushing in the, the correct direction um now kind of talk about a little bit your experience because as you said right i think currently right you are still kind of rehabbing your shoulder correct yeah yeah and how is that kind of process going especially like you said you've had it done three times now yeah Yes. Now, what has different every single time or what has been your, I guess, approach or what different approach have you been taking each time? Well, so the, you know, the first time around I was, I was a teenager. So it was, uh, I was just kind of doing, uh, you know, following the lead of, of the therapist that I was working with. Um, but throughout my twenties and in my strength and conditioning life, you know, I, I, Subluxed my shoulder doing ring dips one time. I subluxed my shoulder doing a muscle up. Always the asshole stuff. Subluxed my shoulder snatching. Um, you know, I've subluxed my shoulder dumbbell pressing overhead. I think I had like 90s or something, you know. So like always 
always things I was pushing myself. I've also soloxed my shoulder skiing. I, I did it water skiing. I've done, you know, so like living an active lifestyle shit happens too. Um, but my approach with my shoulder, I mean, essentially, you know, over the years, I've just tried to be more gentle with it. I mean, it's, I, I, I have, I don't subscribe to the idea that everything is wear and tear, you know, like our body builds up, not everything that we do is cumulatively, uh, uh detrimental to our body, but you know, um, this, the most recent shoulder operation that I had, it was with a physician that I'm friends with here who we've, we've worked with a lot of mutual patients. She's purely a sports med physician. She's worked on uh, multiple of the DC professional sports teams here. She does a lot of like kind of cleanup and exploratory type of surgeries. And she's used to looking at athletes and looking at people that have had multiple repairs on a joint going in there, understanding, being able to, you know, appreciate where the hardware is, where the anchors and sutures and stitches are, what might still be causing them pain and making small little adjustments. And that's stuff that doesn't always match up well to research. Cause if you look at that on like on a regression to the mean scale, cleanup surgeries typically don't do that well, but on a small scale, they can sometimes. So what I found out from that exploratory surgery and subacromial decompression was that I have, you know, grade three, four chondromalacia on my humeral head and uh, in my glenoid. And I've got, you know, I, my shoulder looks like it's been a unstable shoulder at different times in my life, but the labrum doesn't have enough tissue there that's worth repairing. There are some small tears there, but I've had two labrum repairs. So, you know, the, the big injury that I had in 2018 was dislocate. And I'd already had a bunch of those subluxations, but I was like, I don't need surgery. And I was fine for the most part. I would get back to, you know, I was pressing, I mean, I was pretty strong as a power lifter, able to get my hand behind my back for a, a barbell squat. But then in 2018, I had a traumatic dislocation skiing. And that after that, it was like, it was bad. So that was when I got the, the second labor repair and it's never been the same since then. So I guess, what has your training looked like? Mm -hmm. since that, I guess, second dramatic, uh, surgery, cause I still see you, you know, you, you still looking like a beast. You're still pressing and doing a lot of barbell movements that I think as you, you, one thing that you said, and I hear a lot that pisses me off is, Hey, you better watch out. You shouldn't be squatting 500 pounds. You're going to hurt yourself. You're going to, you know, your joints. Oh my gosh, they're going to explode. I'm like, shut up. Like, this is my choice. I'm good. You know, I've yeah, progressively yeah. gotten here. If, it was hurting me. I probably wouldn't do it anyway. So just, just stop. So that, I think that's a, a terrible mindset. I think, as you said, maybe a scare tactic, a lot of physicians or physical therapists do is like, Hey, don't like, I remember one person or one uh, student physical therapy is like, yeah, anything over 300 pounds, you're going to, you're completely going to tear out a terror. You're going to just do crazy shit, shit to your joints. I'm like, dude, you ever heard of, you know, Wolf's law, it applies to the spine. It applies to a lot of your joints. You're going to be okay. But if you have that fear magnet around, uh, I guess, anything with fitness in general, it's, I think, again, you have a poor buy-in and then you're just, I don't know. It's tough for me to have that. I don't know if it's just me that sometimes like you have that asshole mentality. It's like, Hey, I'm gonna go get it. If we get hurt, I guess we learn from it. Yeah. And I think yeah. that goes back to the psychological side because, uh, Adam made a really good point. If you go into the exercise thinking like, as like this individual that you can't go over 300 or you're going to get injured. Like you're more than likely going to get injured because you're just scared or waiting for it to happen. Cause uh, it was going towards a sickness thing and an individual brought it up to me. He was like, Chris, why, why haven't you got the vaccine yet? I'm like, honestly, I don't, there's so much stuff out there about the vaccines. I don't know what to do. So I just don't worry about it. And if I get sick, I'll be okay in a day or two. Um, and I, I get that that, probably isn't the best way to go about it, but I got COVID once and I was running three miles in 110 degree weather three days after I got tested positive. So it's just like the psychological side behind everything, I think goes a long way. Yeah. You know, I, um, I, I, I know that some exercises kind of don't fit as well with my anatomy. And, and I think that for some people and my anatomy and also my modified anatomy from having surgeries, I think that for some people, like, you know, let's say uh, like Jacob Harden, for example, he, I was on the phone with him a couple months ago talking about the herniated disc that he experienced this past, this past spring. And he was having a lot of trouble hip hinging and getting sciatic symptoms from that. And so obviously he would know at a point in time, like maybe like an RDL isn't the best exercise for his anatomy, you know? And so 
or what was going on with his anatomy at that time. Uh, so for me, like, I just have to choose joint friendly exercises, you know, like push-ups are like awesome. They're in my wheelhouse, weighted push-ups, landmine presses. Uh, I can still like pull overhead. Like I'm fine with like lat, lat pull downs and pull-ups and whatnot. But the biggest problem for me is like, uh, bigger degrees of external rotation because of how they kind of tighten down the joint capsule and the labrum in order to stabilize my shoulder. So like, I can't even comfortably get a barbell on my back anymore. You know, I'm a, I'm a guy that competed in powerlifting for fucking like six years and I can't put a barbell on my back anymore, but I still safety squat real hard and heavy and, and frequently. And so, you know, I'm just, I'm just working with what I have at this point. And, uh, you know, it's, I have a Duffalo bar too. Um, but I've found that the safety bar, the transformer bar actually is what I'm, what I'm really enjoying. Um, I found that, uh, you know, just trying to train around and, and finding those, we call it in physical therapy. I call it like the trainable menu, like finding those things that work well for you, you know, is the best way to approach it. And like, even, even like, you know, like Louis Simmons and Westside barbell, like even like their conjugate method was based on that too. Like, we're not going to put a straight barbell on people's backs every time. We're not going to have them straight bar bench every time. We're going to use Swiss bars. We're going to use all different types of angles. And, you know, then we will kind of specialize when we get closer to competition. So I think that, uh, I think that finding those trainable menu exercises is, is, you know, I think it's key for a lot of people. So there's this whole like prehab rehab idea out there. Is there any like staple exercises that you're, you're utilizing in your training program to really just help keep your shoulders really healthy. <laughs> you know, what's funny is like five or 10 years ago, I would have Teddy talk shoulders, right? <laughs> the funny thing is like five or 10 years ago, I would have been more adamant about like, you got to do this or this one's great. And like, I feel like now, like part of my evolution as a physical therapist is like, there's so many, there's so many different things work. And there are so many different ways to like skin a cat, you know? And so um, the go-to stuff for me is like closed chain, closed chain stability exercises, like uh, a push-up, you know, as an example of one, but you're on both arms, but you know, like you're, let's say a push-up, a tall plank or push-up position, shoulder tap, or a T rotation where you kind of move your torso about your shoulder or uh, plyometric push-ups and Closed chain, closed chain stability is great for me. And then just trying to strengthen my external rotators to the kind of maximal range of motion that they can tolerate. And maybe trying to push that motion a little bit through like, you know, kind of lift offs and in range strengthening and that sort of thing. So that I'm constantly trying to, and, and when I kind of dichotomize exercise into what are we training versus what are we rehabbing? The rehab side is where you're pushing that range of motion, where you're pushing what you're comfortable with. The rehab for a knee might be the, you know, a slant board knees over toes squat, whereas the training might be the sit back box squat, you know? And so like one side, you can push harder. One side, you got to be a little bit more cautious with. And so that's really kind of the approach that I've been, I've been able to take with my shoulder. That's worked pretty well and allowed me to maintain a decent, a decent kind of training capacity through these different injuries. Uh, but you know, it's, it's, it's high rep cuff work and it's also not shying away from like lateral raises and like deltoid, like building and like, you know, just straight bodybuilding stuff sometimes that like people may say like, Oh, the lateral raise isn't good for you. The lateral raise on an EMG study is like one of the best rotator cuff exercises that exists. So like, you know, I think just working in those, uh, just kind of, but again, like a lateral raise, isn't a rehab exercise. That's like a body, but that's like day one bodybuilding, you know? So like, it's, I I've kind of gravitated away from the need for like complicated rehab exercises. And it's more important to just find like what works for you on a, like N equals one scale. And I think that hits the head on the, the hits the nail on the head. Cause I think, as you said, I, I wouldn't even think of it before as I know you have to, you have to do X, Y, Z exercise if you want to make this. And at the, now it's like, Hey man, do what feels good and where you can really kind of feel that mechanical tension or just load that muscle, that mind muscle connection. And let's just progressively overload it, man. Uh, yes, we need to maybe switch it up a little bit to kind of keep it fresh in your mind and maybe it can kind of, you know, load, load the joints and muscles at different angles and stuff like that. But at the end of the day, there's no such thing as a good or in my opinion, a bad exercise, right? Mm -hmm. There's just loads or workloads or intensities that you're just not well prepared for. And I think, again, that's where a lot of, you know, these, these acute injuries kind of happen. 
Uh, but we just had, you know, Steph Allen on our podcast and, you know, a lot of what she said specifically with injuries in youth was more of like, Hey, we just, again, not educated and stuff like that. And I want to kind of get your perspective because right. You're working with athletes anywhere from, I would assume maybe as low as middle school and as high as those like professional athletes, what is your biggest thing that you would like to see change? So again, these injuries can kind of decrease and you don't have to see somebody, Hey man, cause again, ACL injuries. I know that one statistic for females is hey, you have three females in the room. At least one of them probably has an ACL injury. If not give them three months, they're probably going to have an ACL injury. And I think that's crazy in my opinion. Yeah. You know, I, I think that, um, the youth sports kind of like machine has just gone way too far towards specialization. And, I, and I'm sure I'm not the only person that said that, you know, on, on the podcast, or at least if not, you know, I know you guys would probably agree with me. And so as you, as you nod your heads over there, so emphatically, but you know, it's, uh, it's, there's like, it's like, there's a showcase and then there's a tournament and then there's, and then there's the fall team and then there's the winter team and the indoor and the outdoor. And it's like, man, like, you reach this point of diminishing returns with your skill development that you might as well just go do something else and then come back to it. And you'll be a better overall athlete. Like, are you going to be that much better if you play lacrosse for, for nine months instead of six months, you know, it's like, or if you, you know, some of the best athletes, like, I mean, Patrick Mahomes is obviously like a slam dunk in this like conversation, but some of the best athletes like have, were really good at other sports and even utilize skill sets from other sports in their sport, like the way Patrick Mahomes can sidearm it, you know, or even like he's even thrown it with his left arm, like, you know, it's like, and so, and that's like, goes back to like basketball and just being like two handed. And so, you know, um, I think that specialization is number one. And then I think that parents are just, parents are kind of too focused on this. And so I, at the end of the day, you got to educate the parents. And I think that a lot of parents do want to do right, but the main sources of education that they get are like from like the sport coaches and the, and that side of things and not from somebody who's really advocating for the kid themselves. So I don't know whether that's like a, a, a pediatrician that's talking to the parents about that, or that's like a, you know, maybe a kids kind of have like a regular physical therapist the way they have like a regular, like a, you know, family practice doc that they go talk to and like that, that, the PT can help them out with that. You know, there's a lot of different ways that we could intervene, but um, you know, until we do, I think that the kind of the youth sports machine will just keep driving and keep pushing and keep pushing. And, and at least in my world, I mean, I'm part of it to be honest, but I just, I'm on the back end. And so uh, at least in my world, like I don't see it improving at all. So yeah, it's kind of crazy. Cause I remember when I played like travel basketball, stuff like that, all I remember was, it was AAU, YBOA, and then there was another one. But now it's like a money-making machine because when I coached uh, my middle school and high school AAU team, man, I was getting hit up from all these different organizations. I was like, yo, who are you? You're just trying to steal my money from my kids? Like, get the hell out of here. Uh, but there's just like local or, or, or tournaments that, hey, you know, conference or states is, you know, four weeks away. Just give me $200 and we'll get you four games and stuff like that. And it's just nonstop, like you said. Um, and I think it more importantly, what I start seeing nowadays, you have that baseball athlete that tries to catch a basketball like this. And it's like, yo, you, you need to get outside of the baseball field and <laughs> explore a little bit um, of some, you know, exercise selection and stuff like that. What do you guys think some underlying uh, terms of that is? So obviously just being a well-rounded athlete is going to help someone be better in their sport, but is that body awareness? Is this uh, diversity within how you can move yourself? Is it like, what, what are some, uh, I guess, key terms behind that? I think just kind of, um, I like the word competency. I think that athletes should go through, should play different sports, like the way physical education is, is set up to expose them to all these different sports. Um, they develop different movement competence, competencies. They learn how to move side to side, front to back. They learn kind of um visual spatial skills of like what's around me like think about how much how good you have to be visual space visually spatially to play volleyball you know and you got all these people around you oh oh i'm not going to go for that ball like you have to judge the trajectory of the ball whether that's going to come to you whether that's going to come to the person next to you you have to know where that person what that person next to you is doing from the last from the last hit or set and like 
I'm not a big volleyball guy. I just kind of pulled that out of my ass. But like, I think that playing all of these different sports in a physical education realm gives you those competencies and those different skill sets. And then I think that also, you know, kids should learn about injury and movement and how to handle their bodies so that when we're adults, we have like a little bit better sense of what's going on. You know, they should learn a little bit about musculoskeletal pain and excuse me, and, and orthopedics, you know? And so if we can kind of empower people and this is a whole nother category, but kids should learn a little bit more about nutrition too. That should be more, more in the education world so that people aren't as unhealthy. Hopefully, you know, if we empower them a little bit, maybe we can reduce diabetes, you know? And so I think that um, I'm a big fan of education, right? Like we have students at our clinic. Uh, we, we don't do it because we get any money or anything like that. We literally do it because we want to make the field better. And uh, I just think that education should start at a younger age. It should happen for the parents too. And all of that together can help to improve kind of competencies, movement variability, awareness, anticipation of issues, and also just kind of like their bullshit meters so that they can kind of know like, oh, this is too much. So going back to what you said about the volleyball is like, yeah, you're going to be moving and reaching a ton of different areas where if you're just like a cross cross country runner or track sprinter, you're going to be going one direction the whole entire time. So if you were to go into a sport like volleyball, you're not going to be able to move that way because you only go straight like forward. Right. You don't even go backwards. You just go forward. Yeah. And I think no, exactly. a lot of it too is just like, again, just having some proprioceptive experience of, again, as you said, kind of having that, that understanding of, right. If I can move all around, you're just that much more quote unquote safer and you should mm-hmm. have a better, a more awareness of uh, proprioceptive skill within yourself. And I think that will transfer as we've kind of just been talking about being a better athlete at whatever sport you may be. Yeah. You know, sport, I think people forget that like sport is fun. That's why we do it. Like that's why you get into it as a kid. You know, and so if we can expose people to more different sports and it doesn't have to be so like competitive because, you know, 99.999% of them are not going pro in anything. Uh, you know, I, I think that um, it could just kind of make things more enjoyable for the kids, too, because they don't have to be in this super competitive environment all the time. They could just kind of enjoy themselves. And so, like, you know, we look at the different like skills that you need for different sports. I named volleyball because it was like kind of obscure. Like you still get those skills from basketball. You know, obviously, in order to like to be a good basketball player, you need to be able to see the court. You need to be able to jump, move laterally. Also need more linear speed that you don't need in volleyball. But it's like every sport has these different skill sets. And uh, I think that like exposing them, exposing people to those as much as possible. Whereas like as a country, we're going in like the wrong direction for like physical education. Like, I think that that would be helpful. It seems like, again, a lot of as specifically for our country, I'm not sure how it is around the world, but um, I know like my little brother um, since high school, man, he's only taken one PE class. And in middle school, it's for half a year or one quarter of the year. And it's we're getting again, we're we're going in the wrong direction. But I think Mm -hmm. people like us will hopefully push it in the right direction Um, and going with that note. Right. You were one of those individuals early on with it. Instagram rehab, prehab and stuff like that from your experience. And, you know, I, you took a little break and so did Jacob. Um, what was the best thing about, you know, IG rehab and what has also you, in your opinion, been the worst thing about IG rehab? Because I think in my opinion, one of the worst things with IG rehab is people will say, Oh, well, he said, I should just do this. And if I do that, I should be pain free. I don't even need to see him. And then they say, well, I did physical therapy. Well, you didn't really do physical therapy. You just went on Instagram and you did a bunch of exercise thinking that was the correct way to do about it. Um, and so, again, what is your what was the best thing about that process? And what was also the worst thing about doing that as well? Yeah, so, I mean, you know, I think that Jacob and I both uh, played a pretty big part in like kind of pushing IG rehab and contributing to and setting a model that a lot of people have um done a good job of emulating and but i think that if you sat down and talked with somebody like jacob or myself uh or listen to a podcast you might find out that like our thought processes are a lot more nuanced than just like do this for back pain or do that for knee pain or whatnot and with that comes experience and evidence and etc etc but um you know to the uh untrained eye it does seem like a pretty basic like kind of um you know like formulaic like oh this hurts i'll do this 
I think that with IG rehab, there's too much, and this is like, honestly, a lot of like media type stuff. There's just too much simplification that ends up being detrimental to people. Right. So it's, it's just, people don't benefit from, they don't want to hear too much complexity. So you got to find how to draw that line, but they also don't benefit from things seeming so simple. And then they end up not being simple. Um, but at the end of the day, it's, it's tough, man. Cause you got algorithms and people click the simple shit and um, the simple stuff. And then also like on the flip, the stuff that's like way too complex, like things that are like, Oh, do this. And it's like, they're moving in like seven different directions and they got like six different bands and kettlebells tied to them. And it's like, do you really need that? And they, and then the practitioners like, giving them four different cues about feeling their inner thigh and their, their right arch and their left, you know, zygomatica. I don't know, like, just like, you know, it's like all over the place. And so I think that there's, I think that there's just a lot of bad stuff out there that gets traction. And then it seems like good because it has social proof, but it's like not the right kind of traction or social proof. Um, I, I also, so I've, you know, I took a break from it partly just like the pandemic and I just got fucking tired of just like doing it for a little bit. And you know, it's a lot. Like when you start responding to everybody on DMS, it's a lot, man. It can, it, you know, I got my wife's about to, I'm about to have my first kid in five weeks. Like I got, I got a life outside of IG, man, you know? So it's like, uh, I got friends, I got a family, I got a lot of different stuff going on. And so um, I think that for a lot of practitioners and people that are on IG, they like, like it at first and they want to try to put stuff out there that's viral. And then they start to see like, oh, maybe I'm going to pull back and try to try to provide more nuance. Um, so that's kind of been my pathway. That's been Jacob's pathway. That's been a lot of people that I, I, you know, there's a lot of people out there like in the like 200 K plus world that like are, are friends of mine that like we text and keep in touch. And like, I think a lot of people feel similarly and they're trying to like, maybe go to YouTube and provide like E3 rehab with like Tony and Sam and Mark Sertica. Um, They've, if you guys don't know them, you should check them out. Like they, Tony Camella, Sam, Sam Spinelli and Mark Sertica were like, let's, they were like, we're tired of just making little IG quick hitters. Like we're going to make like a YouTube channel and they do some of the best rehab evidence-based research content out there. So I think that a lot of people in the IG rehab world, like the practitioners that really care are trying to reach outside of it and do deeper dives because the IG is so surface level. And back to sort of what Adam said about that is like, yes, uh, for a hamstring strain or a tear or whatever the case is, lengthening, lengthened eccentrics might be good. Nordic hamstrings might be good. Uh, doing an RDL might be good. And people don't understand that each of those might work differently for one person. And okay. Yes. If you go to one thing and, and they say doing calf raises is good for your right butt cheek, then like that might not actually be good for you because it was good for the other person. Like, right. so it doesn't take that individual approach just because it's IG. So Absolutely. no more, so no more hip thrusts and we're just going to do calf raises for our glutes. <laughs> oh, duh. That's what, that's what Teddy said. So that's what we're going to do. And then, and then you got like the Joel Seedman types. They're like the people that are like, they're honestly trying to like, or like John Russin does this a lot, like, uh, or Aaron, Aaron does this too, squat university. Like they're honestly trying to make these like declarative statements to like stir things up. And they're trying to like, be like, you shouldn't do this unless you do that. Or you have to do this. It's like, then you got the people that like try to remove all nuance to create like attention, you know? And it's like, that's just annoying to me. There's no room for that. But, um, or, you know, do my protocol. It's the only one that works. It's like, yeah, I just don't even, I, I don't even have time for that to address that sort of behavior, but like, then you get, you know, you have all that online too. So there's just, there's a good, there's good and bad. Um, but there, I will say on a positive note, like I've connected with so many awesome people through Instagram. There's so much good stuff on there. There's so many people that really, 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 really care and do a great job. And uh, I do think it's been beneficial, not only for like us within the field and connecting with each other, but I think it's also been beneficial for a lot of people out there, like gem pop for patients. Like we get, man, like between like Wesley and myself, like, you know, we have almost a million followers on, on social Wesley's a physical therapist that works with me. I don't know if you guys are familiar, but he I hired him a couple of years ago and like put him on, like, we basically like, he's kind of like the ACL guy. He had two ACLs himself. And so like between like, 
we get so many people that are like kind of empowered and they know that they haven't had good PT and they know that there's better. And so like, it also connects us with like people that I think get better care than they would have otherwise. And even if they don't come to us, maybe they live in Boston, but they go see Steph Allen or maybe they, you know, or, or maybe they're like in Orlando and they go see Jacob. Like, so I think that, um, all of the different connections and all the work that all the different like good therapists and good good coaches and practitioners are doing on IG is helpful. So I'm interested, right? Because is was that one also mission of Citizens Athletes? Like, hey, maybe we're just getting too, I guess maybe nitty gritty and it's kind of super specific with these IG videos and we want to have a bigger platform with a bigger outreach. Is that what that possibly another step with uh, your reasoning of citizen athlete? Yeah. So with, with citizen, uh, we, we just wanted to put together like our content and in a organized way that people could actually follow. So like to write, write out programming and like weekly programming and progressions and like, you know, uh, Chris's example of hamstrings, like, let's say they're not ready for the Nordic and the, the RDL yet. Like, what that's maybe like phase three of hamstring rehab let's take them back to like phase one part one you know and so with citizen we wanted to kind of put together like an all-encompassing program for like a lot of the major injuries that you see uh and and then also put together just like a good monthly updated training plan and so we run people through progressions like this month we're doing a dynamic effort method approach and so like we run you know we built through that with like higher volume over the past two months so like we just kind of I think it's probably better programming than people would ever get from like, you know, doing it themselves. And like our price point is not very high. So like, we just, we just wanted to kind of put together something and see if people liked it and see if there was some traction out there. Now we were recently talking uh, a decent amount about injuries and recovering from that, whether it or not it can be caused from this because we don't really know what causes an injury half the time or more than half of the time, probably mobility versus stability. Could you explain the difference about those two and how those might play a role in causing injury? Yeah. So like, I think it's, it's honestly, it's, you need a little bit of both. And when we talk about mobility and stability, we, we kind of look at individual joints, uh, like the shoulder's a big one there because the shoulder has so much mobility and the shoulder more than any other joint struggles from instability, probably the shoulder and the low back struggle the most from instability. Like you don't hear people talk about unstable hips very, very often because we have passive stabilizing structures of the hip. Like the, it sits deeper in the ball and socket joint. Our ligaments are bigger around the hip. The hip doesn't unless you're, you know, Bo Jackson, your hip doesn't dislocate, but the shoulder dislocates all the time. So first off, when we talk about stability, we have to look at like how important is stability for each individual joint. And then how much are we looking at stability and like rate coding and firing and organization of the nervous system and the muscles around there versus just strength? Like if I strengthen my back, is it going to be stable? Absolutely. If I crush it on like GHDs, GHD back extensions, uh, good mornings, 45 degree back raises, supermans, bird dogs, like, you know, high level, low level stuff, I'm going to make my back stable. So I don't necessarily need to spend like an hour doing like dead bugs and like stuff like that, you know, but maybe a little bit here or there is obviously helpful, but like, we don't have to do a ton. Whereas like the shoulder bench pressing and doing pull-ups is not going to make your shoulder that much more stable. So for the shoulder, we need more specialized stability exercises. So I think that we have to look at it kind of joint by joint approach. And then on top of that, when we start to kind of um, look at the dichotomy or, the, or the, the continuum rather from mobility to stability, we don't want too much mobility without stability. So we don't want too much stretching and opening up without also strengthening that's where we get into problems with soft tissue injuries. If you stretch the hamstrings too much and don't strengthen them and you end up with kind of a longer, weaker muscle, that's where we get into problems with the back sometimes too. Um, so I think it's really kind of like both sides and it's a continuum. And like the last, the last main consideration for this is also just 
if we look at kind of hypermobility, everybody's built a little bit differently. Every some baseball players, they get they have big hyperextension in their elbows. Other baseball players lose extension in their elbows throughout the season and their elbows stiffen up. So depending on the person and their kind of blanket generalized mobility for their body, um, you know, we can measure that through the Biton scale. That's how we start to determine how much they need stability or mobility and how to apply. I never thought of it that that, that end point where you kind of looking at it from, I guess, maybe not so much a, a specific joint, but looking what they have or what they actually, I guess, need and kind of work at it from there. It's very similar, I guess, for speed strength. You have mm-hmm. a lot of uh, speed. We should probably get you stronger and then your speed should kind of improve mm-hmm. in that sense as well. So, um, Teddy, but I, again, we're, we want to be curious to your time. We're wrapping up uh, a little bit over an hour, uh, but this was great. Um, as I said, man, it's it's always a pleasure to kind of get somebody that, you know, is working with athletes. He's a DPT and he walks the walk and isn't the, you know, the fascia. You got a foam roll for 15 minutes. Here's a, a here's a rubber band. Put that around your head. And also here's a kettlebell and make sure you, you know, don't squat. And because if your knees go over your toes, you're going to fucking explode and <laughs> you, you're not going to last until you're, you're, you're 40. So you might as well get the wheelchair now. Um, it's, it's the PT, honestly, it's, it's sometimes in my opinion, and I think you can kind of make the same thing with diet culture. There's so many like black and white thinking. And as we kind of alluded to in this podcast, right. There's a lot of, there's a lot of grayscale in here where we need to kind of understand the individual, where they're coming from, meet them in the middle and again, educate them. So again, that adherence and that understanding of the process, um, is that much more enjoyable. And so when I guess maybe they experience it again, they know where to go or how to kind of deal with it. Um, but Teddy, for those individuals, um, again, that really don't know where you are, your, your social media, the citizen athletes, can you go ahead and throw that all that information in there as well? Yeah, absolutely. So um, citizenathletics.com is where you can check out our citizen athletics programming. And uh, it's an all-in-one membership. And so um, you get access to the daily training. We have three levels for that, like a, a home level with minimal equipment, a fully stacked gym level, and then also kind of a super minimal home level with just bands. Um, my IG is strength coach therapy, and that's where I put out my own content. Um, you know, that's, it's kind of a mix of rehab performance and mindset content. Um, and those are probably the two best places to find me. I really appreciate you guys having me on. It's been fun. Yeah, definitely. It's been fun. We're probably going to have to get you on for a part two and we can kind of delve into maybe a specific injury and how that, you know, methodology, how we kind of did with Steph with her specific ACL. Um, we'll definitely have to get your boy on too, to get his perspective on ACL injuries. Cause again, that's a, a scary common injury nowadays. Mm-hmm. Um, I guess before we wrap up, cause I didn't ask Steph this Giannis, did you see his hyperextension on that oh, yeah. one game? Yeah. How the hell did he come back so quick? What is your <laughs> thoughts on that? Cause I, I was like, yo, he's done. Like, that's another great person we just fucking lost to an injury. Well, God Adam, damn it. Like, what's going I on? Know. Adam, if you're listening to his last statement, everyone's hype extension is a little bit different. Okay. So that just might have been, <laughs> well, his, nor- he also that been his normal. People land on that hyper <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, luckily for Giannis, uh, a variety of factors. You know, we, we look sometimes at the intercondylar notch as that kind of impinges on the ACL. And maybe he has a slightly wider notch that didn't happen to impinge on it. Um, maybe he had a little bit stronger posterior capsule of his knee that didn't stretch to the point. Whereas like Tom, when Tom Brady's ACL happened, he hyperextended and it was a contact, but contact injury, but you know, he tore his ACL there. I mean, Giannis, it was honestly like I watched the whole play. I was like, it was, it was awesome to see him come back. And, and like you, I didn't want to see more players go down with injuries and have that affect the playoffs any more than already did with, you know, losing, losing Kyrie and losing, losing Kawhi and all these, you know, so um, I don't know, man, Giannis is a freak, man. He's a Greek freak, you know, it's, and so that's, I think that was, that's the best explanation for it, man. That's, that's the fun of sports is, and, and performance is like, no matter how much we do and explore, like there's so much that we can't explain. And that's, you know, keeps us, it keeps us hungry. Yeah, I totally agree, man. It was cool to see. And it's still, I, I, I want an explanation because I was like, yo, he's done. And I was like, man, like, what the hell? Like, not not Giannis, because, again, he's he's again, you, you said he's the Greek freak. Um, a lot of people hate on him. And I'm like, no, man, he's like what you would want. Like, he's humble. He's from somewhere that you like you can't get out of that. But he's doing it. That's that's what we want for our youth and our generation to hey rise above no matter what circumstances you are. Go get it. 
Uh, but Teddy, yes, sir. It's been great, my man. Um, make sure you guys give this man a follow. Ask him any questions. Um, don't annoy him too much because he's got a kid coming on. So <laughs> be, be nice to him. Uh, but we'll definitely put all of his information in the show notes. Uh, make sure you, again, ask him, him some questions, but don't bother him too much. But Teddy, again, great for uh, great having you on. And we'll definitely have you on back for a part two. That was all the smoke with Dr. Teddy Wilsey. All right. I appreciate it.